Well, as Pastor Phil mentioned, we're continuing our series uh, beneath the surface and looking what it means to be an emotionally healthy follower of Christ. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Phil shared with us in the auditorium that the way we do things now is influenced uh, by the way we've seen things done in the past, perhaps in our families of origin. Uh, And so we looked at the fact that uh, as we look honestly at our past and look at honestly maybe the way we raised the way we've grown up, the way we've made choices since then, that as we look at those things honestly, then we can recognize that there are areas in our lives that are of brokenness and vulnerability. And as we look at those, then we're allowing Jesus Christ to come in and make a difference in those areas, okay? So if you weren't here or you don't remember two weeks back, that's what we talked about, okay? Well, as we think about that, as we think about brokenness and vulnerability, uh, today I want to talk to you about what does it mean to live in brokenness and vulnerability? What's that all about? Why, why is that so necessary? And, you know, as I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking back when I was younger. I remember when I was, being, I was in school, in high school, and I met some people from different parts of, of where I live, different areas, different elementary schools, different junior highs came together in one high school. And I met some kids that at first glance, I thought they had, like, the perfect life. You ever met someone like that? Who, uh, you know, they look good, they dressed well, their families seemed to be, have it together, everything seemed to be going well for them, Right? And you thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. They seem to have it all together. But as I got a little older and wiser, I recognized that what we see at first glance when we meet someone may not be the true reality. Is that right? That's right. That uh, beneath that kind of outward appearance, that pretty much everyone I've ever met has some area of pain and hurt and brokenness in their heart and in their life. And so as we think about that today, as we live in a world where there is a lot of pain and frustration and problems, uh, even if it appears sometimes that some people, they've got it all good. In fact, uh, I was thinking about this, and, and I was thinking about the words of the great philosopher, uh, Keith Urban. Some of you heard of him. And he sings, uh, everybody needs somebody sometimes. You know they do. And, um, you know, I get my inspiration from different places. And uh, that was one that just, I don't know how God brought that together, but so, somehow that, that got me thinking about, living in vulnerability, because everybody does need somebody, and, and we've talked today already, haven't we? And we've celebrated, we've worshipped the one that we, that we truly need. So if being emotionally healthy includes the fact that I've got to recognize that I myself, that you yourself, that we have areas of brokenness and vulnerability in our lives, if that's, if that's a fact, if that's part of what it means to be emotionally healthy, to recognize, to have that profound awareness that, that and this is going to be hard for some of you to, I'm going to say this, okay? Some of you are going to have a hard time with this. But I am not perfect. Now, some of you, that was, that was very obvious already. You knew that. But those of you, I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. My wife and I have had this conversation recently about my lack of perfection and a few curious. Um, you know, the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life often sounds like Heather. And so it's amazing how that works that way. Uh, because I don't know about you in your relationships, but in mine... There are times where the fact that I'm not perfect and I've got brokenness in my life, that comes out. And it impacts those around me. It impacts those closest to me. Did that ever happen to you? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but it's it's true. Uh, But because we know that God loves us, as we're going to talk about here today, as we look at the parable of the prodigal son, uh, the big idea here is that as I can daily recognize and acknowledge the areas of brokenness that are in my life, that impact others, impact myself, I recognize my need, my continual need for relationship with God. 
then I can truly experience and then share and echo his strength, his love, and his forgiveness. Does that make sense? As I daily recognize my brokenness and my need for a relationship with God, that's a daily event. That's something that has to happen each and every day. I can't live on yesterday's relationship with God. What is God saying to you and I today? But as we do that, then we can experience again today God's strength helping us in our brokenness, God's love knowing that he accepts us and he cares about us, and we experience his forgiveness of every wrong we've ever done. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? All right, so if we're going to grow in Christ, how are we going to do that? It's going to start with acknowledging that we need to grow, right? Okay, if I'm like, no, I'm good just the way I am. I got nothing to learn, right? I'm not growing. I'm heading the wrong direction. So each and every day as I walk with the Lord and acknowledge my need for him, that's important. And in Luke chapter 15, let's look at our notes there. It's in really small print. Sorry about that. It's a big passage of scripture, but it's going to be up here on the screen as well. Luke chapter 15, Jesus encountered some people who did recognize their brokenness, and then he met some people who didn't. So we're going to look at those two groups of people today, uh, people that Jesus encountered, some of whom seemed to have it all. In fact, they were the leaders of society. Let's look at Luke chapter 15. We'll read verses 1 to 2, and then our, our, our passage jumps down to verse 11. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. That's interesting, isn't it? This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that Jesus was associating with such sinful people. He's even eating with them. How horrible. That's bad stuff, right? From their point of view. Down in verse 11. To illustrate the point four, Jesus just told two quick parables about there are some who seem to be, they're they're there with the, the authority figure, they're with God, and there's some that's lost. And how there's authority figure goes and does this incredible search to go find the lost sheep or go find the lost coin and the rejoicing that takes place when the lost one is found. And to illustrate the, per- the point for the verse 11, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. One of the most awful things you could ever say to somebody He says to his father, I want you to die. But because you're not dying, give me my stuff now. As we go on, verse 12. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. It's an amazing thing. Just, you got to understand how amazing and horrible that whole situation is. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over that land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. So here this good Jewish boy is feeding pigs, okay? That's how low he's gone. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Well, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, okay, Uh, Father, uh, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he's he's got his speech ready to go, okay? So he returns home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, 
filled with loving compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. And his father said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. That's a great parable, isn't it? But it continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slayed for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, You never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead has come back to life. He was lost, but now... He is found. Let's just bow our heads for a moment and ask the Lord to to help us today. God, we just, for a moment, pause and we say to you, Lord, we ask you to open our ears and our hearts to what you're trying to say to us today. Lord, we may have heard this story before, but God, we ask that you would tell it to us again afresh today, that we would hear what you're saying, Lord, so that we can live that life with you, in relationship with you, that life of forgiveness, that life experiencing your love. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a pretty famous parable, isn't it? What's it usually called? The parable of the prodigal son, right? Okay, Uh, but usually if you think about it, the story's told in kind of, uh, if I could put it this way, it's kind of a sentimental story. So there's there's this son who was terrible and he did awful things, but then he comes back and the story ends and they all live happily ever after, right? That's kind of more the, the way we often tell it. And it's true, if we go back to the beginning of the parable in verse 1, we read that Jesus was hanging with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. So it makes clear why Jesus told this parable, right? Because he's hanging, there's sinners there, there's tax collectors, there's ter- people who are just living immoral lifestyle, and Jesus tells them a story about an immoral person who comes back to God. That's obvious, right? It's a great story. But we're missing something amazing if we read the parable just that way. Because this is not the story, the parable of the prodigal son, Singular. This is a story of two sons, isn't it? There's two sons here, and rather than one lost son, Jesus is telling us there are two lost sons in this parable. The fact that people tend to focus on the younger son, the prodigal son who did these awful things and and just totally dishonored his father and all that he had done. The fact that we focus on that and we ignore the older brother, it reflects a problem that we have in our culture today. I want to talk about that. The problem... Here's our first point here, and you're filling the blanks. The problem is instead of acknowledging my personal years of brokenness, my need for God, our culture tells us to be strong, to work harder, 
to ignore the pain, to ignore the brokenness, rather than acknowledging that, yes, I am broken, and that brokenness has an impact on my life and everyone who comes in contact with me, rather than doing that, rather than saying, yeah, there are problems in life, there are thorns and thistles in life that damage what's happening in my life. What we do oftentimes is we have three responses. There's three things that we often do rather than acknowledge that. So I want this kind of a little test. One of the things I do at the college is I'm in charge of what we call assessment of student learning. Okay? And what that fancy phrase means is if you pay so much money to take a course, and we say at the beginning of the course, in this course you're going to learn this, at the end we have to assess whether you actually learned it or not. Okay? So I'm going to do a little assessment of student learning today. Okay? All right? I'm going to give you, there's three options that we often tend to fall in, and I want you to see if any of these apply to you. Okay? The first response is rather than acknowledging the, the brokenness in our lives, we often flee. The first one is we flee. We try to bury our pain and our frustrations by running away. Look at the younger son. He decided to flee. He didn't like what was going on. He leaves home, and then he goes and he buries himself in every pleasure the world tells you will make you feel better. But he finds himself where he'd rather be eating pig food because he's starving to death. For some of us, we may flee God in other ways. Some people pour themselves in their work to avoid the fact that things at home aren't so good. Some Christians even pour their, they flee what's going on in their lives and their brokenness by trying to ignore it, and they pour their time and their energy into the church. I've seen plenty of people do that. Meanwhile, things otherwise in their life are completely broken, but they don't want to talk about it. They're just focusing on what they're doing for God. That's fleeing the situation. The second option we might choose is we might fight. I might blame others and become angry or bitter because life's not going my way. That's what the older brother does, isn't it? He's at home, right? He didn't flee, but he's fighting with the father. He's arguing with his father. In that day, in first century Judaism, you, a son, would never, first of all, the younger son, would never be allowed to live making that request. I want, I want you to be dead. Give me the money. But secondly, the, sec- the older brother, what he's doing is just as dishonoring to the father. He's arguing outside in public where everyone can see, right? He's arguing with his father and saying, I'm going to disobey your direct command. I will not come in. Do you see that? He's fighting with God. Why is he fighting with the Father? Because his heart is full of anger and he is bitter. And unfortunately, many times in life, you and I can find a place where, where there's, a, there's bitterness, there's a piece of bitterness about some situation or some person, some hurt or some pain. And if we allow that bitterness to remain, it will grow, it'll take root, it'll grow, and it can destroy us. Fleeing can destroy us and fighting can destroy us as well. And then the third option we often choose is we freeze. Okay, so we get caught in an unhealthy situation. Maybe we don't flee. Maybe we're not fighting. But we're, we're kind of immobilized. We're, we're flight and, and fight don't work. So people, this can take on the form for people of, of they're, they're, they're paralyzed. Maybe they, maybe they fall into depression. They just don't know what to do. They, they feel hopeless. They don't feel, seem to be any answers. They're to make their an unhealthy situation, and they're stuck in that. And so today, if you're in a situation, do you tend to fee, flee or fight or freeze when there's conflict or tension in your close relationships or in your marriage? What do you do? When you're facing a stressful deadline at work, what about financial uncertainty? I've got to tell you that uh, 
and all the things that God's led Heather and I to do over the number of years, there's been some significant times of financial uncertainty where I knew what the bills were going to be next month, but I don't know where the money's going to come from. What are you going to do in those scenarios? Well, what is our response? Is that something to say, okay, uh, I'm going to take this to God? When actually our natural tendency is to do the fleeing, the fighting, or the freezing, right? Okay? So if, when these things come, what, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why is it so hard for us to acknowledge our need for God? All right, if you say, okay, well, Pastor Stewart, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I love God. I'm here in church today. I worship God. I, I do this, I, you know, all that. What are you saying to me? What I'm saying is whether we know it or not, it's really hard in these real-life scenarios for us to always acknowledge that, you know what, this is brokenness, and I can't handle it. I, I'm not strong enough to deal with this. I need someone greater than me. I need someone wiser than me. Oftentimes, we say to God, okay, these are the areas that you can have, all right? But these areas over here, I'll take control of and I'll keep because I can handle them, right? Anyone ever done that? Okay. Any perfect people here? All right. Unfortunately, what happens is we buy into the world's idea of, of strength or success. Strength says you can do it all. Success says you can have it all. And because that's kind of the philosophy of the culture we live in, that we buy into that and we say, well, that's the way I've got to be too. Well, the fact of the matter is, is life is filled with pain and brokenness. And we need to recognize that. Otherwise, there's no room for God to come into those situations. What happens? Why do we do this? Why do we fail to recognize our need for God? Well, in the parable, Jesus is showing us that there are two competing worldviews, two ways of looking at the world that people fall into. The first worldview Let's call it the relativistic worldview, okay? In the parable, the younger brother wants to control his life by living a life without any rules, okay? That's what the younger brother's all about. The relativist worldview, Jesus is showing us here, says, I'm going to decide what's right or wrong for me. I'm going to live the way I want to live. No one's going to control me. So what happens, the person who says, well, there's no absolute right and wrong. It's up to me to decide what's right or wrong. But when things go wrong, the relativist person says, Well, the problem with the world isn't me. It's those other people, those condemning people who are trying to tell me there's something wrong with me. I need to get away from those people. I need to go out and find myself. All right? And and maybe that's been you. Maybe you know someone like that. One worldview says, I want to control my own life and no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm my own truth. That's the relativist worldview. The second view that Jesus gives us here I like to call the moralist worldview. In the parable, the older brother, the elder brother, wants to control his life, but he does it by following the rules. The younger brother breaks the rules. The older brother follows the rules, right? The elder brother says to himself, I'm not going to do what I want to do. Instead, I'm going to do good. I'm going to do things the right way, okay? So he's saying, I'm going to be in control of my life by obeying all the rules. And when things go wrong, the moralist type of person you know, Jesus is talking to Pharisees who consider themselves to be the right people. And the moralist person says, the problem in the world isn't me. It's those immoral, relevant people who refuse to live by the rules. If they would just live by the rules, everything would be okay. Do you see this, how this is going? Blame game going on from both groups. The amazing thing in this parable is, Jesus takes a hammer and destroys both of these worldviews and says they are completely wrong. You've built yourself up a house of cards of your own view of the world, how you're going to control your life, and Jesus just goes in there and whack, 
whacks right through and says, neither one of those are right. Think about it. Jesus says, look at these two brothers. Look very carefully. They are completely opposite of each other, but both of them are completely lost. Both of them are alienated from the Father. The Father has shown nothing but love and care for them in each one of them because they've decided, I'm going to control my life. I'm not going to let the Father have say in my life. The younger son does it through how? He says, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to run away. The older son, the older brother says, I'm going to control the Father by obeying all the rules. So which one is going to keep your father from the Father today? Is it going to be your badness or is it going to be your goodness? I mean, it's easy for most of us to see the younger brother's choices aren't good choices. But it's a lot harder for us to see what's wrong with the older brother. Tim Keller says it this way. The basic premise of religion is that if you live a good life, things will go well for you. That basic premise is wrong. Jesus was the most morally upright person who ever lived, yet his life was filled with the experience of poverty, rejection, injustice, and even torture. What religion tells us is an answer is just as equally wrong an answer as people who reject relationship with God. Think about it. The elder brother comes in. He hears what's going on. The younger sons come back. We're having a party celebrating that the son we thought was alive, or dead is now alive. And what is it? He can't even fathom in his brain what the father's doing. He's like, what are you doing? That makes no sense. He's completely rejected you. He's saying he wished you were dead and he ran off and spent all his money in an immoral lifestyle, which is against everything that we stood for as a family. And you're celebrating it. What are you doing? That's what he's doing. I mean, you know, like i got to give you the more dramatic version, but that's what's in the words, okay? All right. What does that tell you? It tells me the elder brother has been with the father all this time. He's been involved in the father's affairs, probably running the farm for him, right? He's been involved in the father's activities. He's been physically with the father, but he doesn't know the father at all. He doesn't know the father's heart. He doesn't understand the father's love. He's been obeying everything, but he is lost. In reality, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own ends. Rather than loving the father, enjoying the father, enjoying who he was, enjoying his generous heart, they served him for their own sakes. So if you're a follower of Christ today, a person who claims to know God, the question for you, same question it is for Stuart, is this, am I like the elder brother? Where, maybe, Stuart, are you like the elder brother? What are my motivations? If I do the right thing, what are my motivations for doing the right thing? Can I admit when I'm wrong, readily asking other people's forgiveness? How good am I at that? Well, I did well at that last year, but how did I do yesterday? How did I do today? Can I speak freely about my weaknesses and mistakes? You know, some people, you meet them as Christians, and everything is always good. It's all good. Nothing's ever bad. How are you doing? Are you, do, you doing okay with that? Oh, I'm good. I'm good, right? Because they can never honestly say, hey, I'm struggling. Or, hey, could you, could you pray with me about that? Or can I talk to you about that? Or, because we can't ever show weakness. That's a worldly, secular idea. That's the older brother saying, I'm going to look like everything's put together the right way, 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in charge of my own life that way. I'm going to obey all the rules from the outward, but actually my heart is far from the Father. And there's some other ways you see uh, in your notes as well. So that's the problem. What's the solution? The solution, as we see in the parable with the younger brother, is I have to come to my senses and recognize my brokenness and submit to the Father's love. The younger son, he was there, and he's like, I'm starving to death. I'm dying here. I need, you know what? I will go back and submit myself to the Father and become his servant. I'm not even worthy to be his son. The relativist person thinks they don't need God. They don't have to repent because God, they believe, will embrace everyone just what they are. You know, the the relativist person worldview says, hey, it's only people who make rules about right and wrong. God's just going to love everyone for who they are. And God does love everyone as they are. But he says, there's a right way to follow me. Come close to me. Walk in my ways. Experience the health and the transformation I have for you. The moralist person thinks, I don't need to repent. I know God likes me. He'll answer my prayers because I'm a good person. He's got to do what I'm asking him to do. And many times I run into people who are angry at God because he hasn't done what they wanted him to do. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. I mean, I assume that God's answer to some of these prayers is on the way eventually. <laughs> Anyone have prayers like that? But maybe God's answer to the prayers if it's not the way I want it to be. But what do you mean about that? God, I'm doing all this stuff for you. Look what I've done with my life for you. You've got to answer this prayer the way I want it answered. That's not a heart of love for the Father. The Bible tells me I need to recognize my own humanity and my own weakness. Now think about it. If you think about the Apostle Paul. Before he met Christ, he tells us he was, the mo- he was like a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anyone had ever devoted their life to zealously following all of God's rules and regulations, Paul had done that, right? But then he found on the road to Damascus that he was the enemy of God. Zealously obeying all of God's laws, but he didn't know God at all. He tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. All of us, every single human being on the face of of planet Earth today are in this scenario. We're all prisoners of sin. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Because we live in a fallen world, by default, you and I are living in a world of brokenness, and we experience that brokenness. We are all prisoners of sin. We all have sinned. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that the loving Heavenly Father has seen us and He has already begun running towards us. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to come down to earth to die on the cross so that you and I could have complete acceptance and forgiveness. John, 1 John 4, 9 says this, God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world, so that we may have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Folks, we're living in a culture today where people are desperately hungry for true acceptance and true love. You know, we, people are looking for love in all the wrong places. That's what one song says, Right? And people don't even know what the word love means. It's the most misused four-letter word in the English language. Okay? 
But we can see in this parable, in this story, Jesus is trying to, to give us a word picture to see what God's really like. In verse 20, I want to read it to you again. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And today, that's what Jesus Christ offers to you and I again. Maybe you've never come to that point of accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. But each and every day, you and I have to come to this point of awareness again. I, Stuart Ross, am a sinner. I need Jesus Christ today. Yesterday is not good enough. I've been serving God my entire adult life. I've been an ordained minister to the Assemblies of God for years. That doesn't mean a thing. If today, when I woke up, I didn't make myself available to Jesus Christ. I mean, wh why do people fall away and forget about God? Why, why do people get into scenarios and situations and they become bitter and they become angry and they won't forgive others? Why, how does that happen in our human heart? Because every day, you and I have got to make this thing new. We're going to make this relationship new. What, what I did for my wife yesterday was great. I did all kinds of chores around the house. I am a world-class vacuumer, okay? But what is that going to do for her today? You see what I'm saying? If I'm selfish today and I'm, I'm about me and I'm not going to help out with things that are going... You see what I'm saying here? I'm trying to give... Does this make any sense at all? I mean, maybe you've heard the gospel thousands of times. Maybe you've accepted the Lord many days or weeks or years ago. For you, the point is here today. The point is the point for me. This is about relationship. How well do I know the Father today? Because the Father is still, every day when we wake up, He's there, reaching out towards us. In fact, He's even running towards us. He sent His Son. He sends His Holy Spirit to live inside of us that the reality of who God is can empower you and I to do God's will. That's an awesome deal. So the results here, number three, the results as I can honestly own and acknowledge my personal brokenness, my personal and continual need and dependence on God, then I can truly experience and share His strength and love and forgiveness. Think about that. His strength. You know, if there's anyone I've read in the New Testament who could have tried to live out of their own strengths, I always think of the Apostle Paul. Okay? He was a missionary. He was a church planner. He was a pastor. He was a teacher. He was an evangelist. He was spiritual father to thousands of people, okay? But when Paul, Paul, when he reflected on this, he recognized God could never use him because of who he was in himself. If he was depending on his own strength, that was going to run out. This is what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He's talking about his thorn in the flesh, his great weakness. We don't know if it was medical, personal, spiritual, relation. We don't know what it was. Paul says, though, Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. And God says to you and I today, my grace is all you need. Your own strength isn't going to help you. All you need is my grace. And Jesus, Jesus says to Paul and to you and I, my power works best in weakness. Paul says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. How many times do you do that every day? Let me tell you about all my weaknesses. Yeah, you know, right? That's a little weird, right? 
<laughs> Paul says, I'm glad to boast of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ can work through me. I'm not telling you my weakness is for you to feel bad about that or for me to feel bad about it. The point is, every day I recognize my weaknesses in my own self. So as I'm allowing, I'm saying, God, this you know who I am. You need to come and you need to work in me. Your power. I make myself available for his power to come and work through me. Paul says, that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and trouble that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you're feeling weak today, Jesus says, let me be strong for you today. Make room for me. Acknowledge where you're at. Let me come. I'm going to be strong for you today. Living in brokenness and vulnerability means honestly accepting the fact that I'm not as emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally strong as I would like to think I am. <laughs> Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. But as we honestly will recognize and say, okay, God, here we are again today. Here I am in all of my glory. <laughs> you know my weaknesses, Lord. You know my problems. You know what I'm struggling with. God, will you come in and work in my life? That's what life will look like. 1 John 4, 11. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. I don't know about you, but there are times I, I don't know how to help myself, never mind help anybody else. And you know what? When those moments come, I need to recognize, Stuart, you're doing it again. You're trying to do this in your own strength. Folks, you can't be a Christian in your own strength. You can't do it. It's not possible. Okay, But who are we today as believers? Who are we today as a church? Who is God calling Echo Community Church to be? This is a place where each one of us has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has taken us from sin, and he has taken away the penalty of our sin, and he has showered his amazing grace and forgiveness on our lives so that you and I, what can we do? We can show what Jesus' love looks like to others. That means we can give each other second chances. We can forgive each other. We can help each other. We can strengthen and encourage each other. We can focus all we do on showing the love of Jesus. Think about this. What would a true elder brother have done in the first part of that parable? The younger brother and dishonors the father. The father still lovingly gives him the money, and he runs off. A true elder brother would have seen the pain of the father's heart, and he would have done all that it took to go out there. He would have, he would have left behind the farm. He would have gone out there himself. A true elder brother would say, I'm not going to rest until I find that younger brother of mine and bring him back to the father. That's what a true elder brother would have done. And you know what? We have that true elder brother. That's why Jesus came from heaven down to earth and he took the cost and the penalty of all that you and I have ever done wrong and he took it on himself and he brings us back into relationship with our loving heavenly father today if I'm willing if you're willing each and every day to acknowledge 
our areas of brokenness and, and commit ourselves to, to again walk today. I'm going to walk deeper with Jesus today than I did yesterday. Then we'll experience his love. The Father's love, his grace, his forgiveness, his strength coming towards us. The gospel says you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Yet you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hoped. Because Jesus lived and died in your place.